0: Now, hear God's holy word from Psalm 25. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Yahweh. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Yahweh, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me, for your goodness sake, O Yahweh. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we ask you to clear our heads and clear our hearts and give rest to our spirits as we sit and listen to and allow your spirit to speak peace to us. We ask that we indeed would be uh, free from guilt and fear and regret, and all bitterness as we prepare for the great feasts and celebration to come, and help us to do that work of preparation right now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, amid all of the frustrations of this year and all the craziness of, of this year, I have somehow managed to heap more indignity on myself and add to my own list of tribulations. I've set a personal record in the year 2020 for most tow trucks called in a calendar year (laughs) thankfully my car insurance company has uh you know roadside assistance so i'm not out any extra money uh but two of those times and that's not the only times but two of those times i got my car stuck in the mud so bad that i had to get a tow truck to pull me out the most recent time i was on the lake wheeler property after chapel a lot of you know the story we had that 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 deluge, that torrential downpour, that monsoon that came through while we were in chapel washed out, uh, turned the driveway into a uh, sinking sand. And as I was trying to pull out, I got stuck all the way up to the, the middle of uh, of my hubs. Uh, when, you, when you start to sink and you're driving, you start to feel I'm not going anywhere. And you see and you feel that you're getting stuck in the mud. Not only does your car sink, but your stomach sinks because... I'm not going forward, I'm not going backward, and I'm just spinning my wheels and I'm only making my situation worse. I'm getting more and more stuck. I'm getting stuck more deeply. I'm only getting deeper into this. As troublesome as it is, and we've all, I think, known that experience of getting a car stuck in the mud, there's a predicament even worse than that, and that's to be stuck in your life. Most people have past disappointments And some people allow those past disappointments to shape them and to change their perspective on life and to color them in such a way that they continually grieve over missed opportunities and they become swallowed up in remorse over bad decisions. It's possible to be so fixated on regrets that all of your thoughts are consumed by the what ifs and the what could have beens. Maybe you had an opportunity to do something that you had really set your heart upon and you messed up. You made a mistake and you threw it all away. Or maybe you were told, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't don't try that. But you did it anyway. And you you're, you feel so dumb that you missed the signs. You were told not to do that and you did it and you missed the signs and you messed up. Or You were given an occasion to do the right thing or or say the right thing, but you froze in that moment of truth and you failed and you squandered that opportunity and now you can't forgive yourself. Or you held the thing that you wanted in the palm of your hand and you dropped it. You had it and you let it slip through your fingers and now you are living in sorrow over that missed or lost thing. All of these thoughts, and there are many more, and there are other ways that you can articulate that, and I can't even begin to list them all, but all of these thoughts can dominate our thinking and put us in a place where we can't go forward, and we can't go backward, and we're stuck spinning our wheels. We're in one place spinning our wheels, sinking deeper and deeper into the mire, lying awake at two o'clock in the morning, not covered in mud, but covered in sorrow and despair, obsessed over the missed opportunities, obsessed with regrets. This Advent, we're preparing for the great day of the Lord, and we're making ready for the great feast of the incarnation by cleaning house. Uh, I hit pause on our other study so that for a few weeks we could clean up our hearts and our minds and clean up our lives ahead of of the the great feast to come. There are unbiblical habits of living and thinking which mute and dilute our joy. You can't make merry, you can't rejoice and celebrate when your heart is weighed down. So there's work to be done. Last week, we talked about how to gain a clear conscience before God. And how you do that is you admit that you're a sinner, you confess your sins to God, you confess your sins to the people you have injured or offended, and you seek to make restitution, resting in the mercies of Jesus. That's how we're cleansed from guilt. And this week, I wanna hear what the scriptures have to say about how we are released from regrets. Now, guilt and regret may sound like synonyms, and there is some overlap between guilt and and regret, but but let's separate them out and differentiate between the two, and let's view them as two different categories of sorrow. Both can cause depression, both can cause deep despair, both regrets and sorrows, but, but, but let's pull them apart a little bit. Guilt has to do specifically with unconfessed sin. Guilt is, I have violated God's law and I am under condemnation, and I need to make that right. That is guilt. Regret is something we experience when we lament over a missed opportunity, or a loss, or a bad decision that has ongoing consequences, and and many of the things that we regret may have not been high-handed deliberate sins, Maybe we made a judgment call based on the best information we had at the time and it turned out that it was the wrong call. It just turned out it was the wrong thing. We're prone to sorrow over circumstances which may not be the result of sin. We can grieve over things that we have really and truly and fully been forgiven for also. We can can be forgiven and still go on grieving because we're still living with the consequences and these things still bring us remorse. So, so that, is, uh, that, that is grief and, and that is regret, and, and you need to know as, as we study these things, and the reason that we're doing this now is that you don't have to remain incapacitated and stranded in this grief. It's possible to get unstuck. It is possible to get a toe out of the mire of regret in such a way that you have never felt more clean or more free, and this could be the happiest Christmas that you've ever had if only you hear and obey God's word. It is possible to get unstuck from the mire of regret. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 says this, God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulations. If you are suffering, no matter what it's from, if, you are, if you're consumed with sorrows, do not think yourself abandoned by God or hopeless. Our God is the God of comfort, as John read from Isaiah 40 this morning. He is the God who brings comfort. And that's why in Psalm 25, King David can pray with confidence, to you, O Yahweh, I lift up my soul. O oh, my God, I trust in you. Because God is not keeping himself at a distance. God is not avoiding us. God is not treating us as if we're diseased, as if we're infectious or walking open sores. David knows that he can trust the Lord without reservation because God has drawn near to him. All kinds of other helpers, all other confidants, all other friends, all other counselors might abandon him, but David knows the Lord is not going to forsake him. So based on this confidence, David opens up about his shame. He says, let me not be ashamed. Let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Shame is one of the immediate consequences of sin. And in fact, shame is a blessing of God's grace in that when we sin, we immediately know that we've done something wrong. We know that something is out of joint. We know that Something isn't right. Shame is an acute sense that you are unacceptable. You've been exposed. Your secret is out. You're disgraced. You feel humiliated. You feel less than human. It's, it's it's Everything's out of joint. It's not right. Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree, and immediately their eyes were opened, and they're ashamed. Shame makes you want to crawl in a hole. It makes you want to run and hide. Don't look at me. Don't talk at me. Don't don't talk to me. Um, Don't have anything to do with me. I'm so ashamed. I'm sure we have a memory or two. We all have a memory where our mind goes back to something we did or something we said a long time ago. Where every time we, we think of that thing and that little image plays in our mind, we shrivel up inside and we want to curl into a ball and we die all over again. Even if you have confessed your sin, and even if you know that you're forgiven and that you've been restored and set right, still, the remembrance of certain sins still brings residual shame. It feels like the whole thing is brand new, like it just happened, no no matter how long it's been. So here David has in mind his own past failures that have brought him shame, the things that have even given his enemies occasion to rejoice. And he prays for deliverance from that shame for the Lord to point to him to a future away from that shame. So verse four, he says, show me your ways, O Yahweh. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Guide me, direct me out of this. Get me into truth. Let all of that past fade into the background. Cause that to become a distant memory so that I'm not obsessing over it. I'm not going back over it and over it and over it in my mind but it's so far behind me that I just, I can't put it all together. It's gone. It's fuzzy. It's, It's distant. And then in that spirit, he asks God to remember some things and to forget some things. Verse six, remember, O Yahweh, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from old. Don't forget your covenant mercies. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Yahweh. When you consider me, Lord, consider me through the lens of your covenant love for me. If you look at me outside of your covenant love, you're going to see a broken, empty shell of a sinner, not even a full human. You're going to see something that's a mess. That's why I'm taking shelter in the refuge of your covenant. So when you look at me, look at me through the rainbow. Look look at me through the blood on my door. Look at me through the sacrifice. Look at me through your promises to me, but please do not look at me through my sins, especially the sins of my youth. He names those specifically. The sins of my ignorance, the sins of my immaturity, the sins of my foolishness. Don't look at me through those things. I, I melt just to think about the horrible things and the the foolishness and the stupidity of my past. Don't look at me through those things. Those things bring me great pain whenever they come to mind. I'm ashamed of the man that I was, David says. Lord, I'm asking you to forget those so that I can forget those. Because if I know that you've forgotten them, God, in your infinite wisdom and knowledge, If I know that you put these things behind your back, then I can, then I can put them behind my back. So according to your mercy, remember me from now on. And then his hymn and his prayer reaches into the future. Listen for the shalls of the next few verses. Verse 12, who is the man who fears Yahweh? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of Yahweh is with those who fear him and he will show him his covenant. My eyes are ever toward Yahweh for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. As a man who fears the Lord, here's where I'm headed. These are all the things that are going to happen to me. He shall teach me in the way that he chooses. He's going to correct me and guide me. He, he shall give me prosperity. I shall dwell in prosperity. My children's children shall inherit the earth. And the next time I come close to calamity, he shall pluck my feet out of the net. So David's gone from an orientation toward past shame and the sins of his youth and the, and the foolishness of his past. He's gone from an orientation away from former shames to a future perspective on the coming blessings and providences of God. And he says, when you look at me, O Lord, consider me according to the man I am becoming and not the man I used to be, view me as a finished product of your grace and not the waste and the sinner that I was. Is there anything more refreshing and more cleansing to know that God answers this prayer. Number one, do you believe that God answers this prayer? How do we know that God answers this prayer? Because it's in the Psalter, and he told us to sing the Psalms. So he's not going to give us empty prayers to pray. He's not going to give us flowery words that just sound nice on a, on a calendar, or you know, just something you can cross-stitch, and isn't that cute? These are prayers that he wants us to pray and if he tells us to pray these prayers, that means he's going to answer these prayers. Is there anything more refreshing than to know that God wants to hear this prayer from you? Forget the sins of my youth. Put my shames behind me. Set me toward a glorious future full of your providence and blessing. Is there anything more refreshing to know that God views me and you, repentant sinners, whose lives are hidden with Christ in God, that he views us not as who we used to be, but who we are going to be. That the God who knows everything, the God who knows your secret thoughts and the hidden counsels of your heart, the God who sees you and hears you when no one else can, the The God who knows everything about you chooses to view you not through your worst and your weakest failures of your past, but through your glorified and perfected future. Because he sees you through Christ and he's well pleased with his son and you are in him. So God does not simply tolerate you. God delights in you. So we can pray Psalm 25 with confidence. God, help me shake off my shame and set me toward this future that you have for me. Now, I could stop there and say, now go do this. Go do this, pray this, and do this, and be warmed and filled, and let's eat. But I'm afraid that our regrets are too dug in. I'm afraid that our regrets are too much a part of us. So we have to do a little work to dig them out and expose them. Why do we carry these litanies of self-criticism around with us? Why do we nurse them? Why do we bring them out on a cloudy day only to make ourselves more despondent and more hopeless and more sorrowful? To what end do we keep this catalog of remorse? What kind of theology are we living under and what kind of gospel are we preaching to ourselves when we do this? So let's look at three sources of regret and see what God's word has to say about them. I want to look at false standards that we are living under that aren't God's standards. I want to look at bad decisions with ongoing consequences that we have to interpret biblically. And then I want to look at the depth and scope of God's mercies. And, uh, We'll, uh, we'll go through these in order. One common fountain of regret, one common source of regret, is our slavery to synthetic standards of righteousness. Um, I expect myself to do this, I expect myself to have this kind of life, I didn't achieve that, and so I regret all of the decisions I made that caused me to fall short of that thing, or, There are external expectations placed upon me, extra biblical codes of righteousness that I have submitted myself to. I have failed to live up to them, and now I regret the failures. I regret the things that I did not do. Um, we, We either tend to prop up our own set of expectations for what good and moral and decent people do, or we allow ourselves to be subjected to someone else's expectations, someone else's law, and then inevitably failing to measure up to either of those standards, we are left ashamed and regretful and without any means of justification toward those standards. This is the thing about false gospels, they can't save. False messiahs can only blame you and leave you feeling rotten. They can't redeem you, they can't justify you. There's there's no one who has kept that law perfectly and so who is the savior who will redeem me and keep that law perfectly before the face of the Father? It can't happen, they can't redeem you, it doesn't work. And yet we willingly and repeatedly enslave ourselves to extra biblical law codes and expectations all over the place and then we judge ourselves by them rather than the law of life. So so what are some of these? A man, a man may believe that in order to be a righteous and holy, respectable person, he has to attain a certain level of professional success. And if he owns a boat and if he has a beach condo and he takes his family on exotic uh, vacations every time school's out, then that would be proof that he had worked hard enough, that he had done all of the right things. But because he can't do any of those things, and he has neighbors or relatives who can, then he must be the failure. And he finds himself stuck in regret for a whole series of missed opportunities that brought him to this place in life. He thinks that he's a disaster because he's comparing himself to these other expectations. He's holding himself to a standard that God doesn't hold him to. A young woman may be burdened by the expectations of other people, to finish college. You know, at least get a master's, right? I mean, at least, right? If you go further, that's fine. And do that because that's what all the really smart people do and you gotta have you know, the university tell you you're smart or else you're not smart. You know that, right? You're not smart unless you have a university tell you you're smart. And so that's the expectation placed on her, but her greatest desire is to get married and have children. She wants nothing more than to be a mother. And so she leaves college and she gets married However, every time she goes home for Thanksgiving, she's made to feel like a failure and she's shamed into thinking she's wasted her life. She spirals into regret. She says, maybe I should have stayed in school. Look at all these things that I'm missing out on. These kinds of regrets camp out around us when we haven't lived up to our own standards or we haven't lived up to our family's standards or other people's expectations. And as long as we are enslaved to these false standards, there is no escape or redemption from these regrets within the system we have erected for ourselves. The only way out is to stop propping up our own law code and to stop submitting to unlawful expectations of other people who have no authority and no jurisdiction over us. If you are feeling a sense of duty or compulsion that is bringing you shame or regret or anxiety because you can never live up to it, it is appropriate to ask, whose standard am I trying to live up to? Who wrote this code? Who wrote this expectation? Whose law is this anyway? Where did this come from? Especially if that expectation has run in direct opposition to God's standard. If the things that God values are not part of this expectation or standard or law code, then you know that you're not beholden to it. You're you're not submitted to it. In, In Philippians, Paul describes the goal of his life this way. Paul says his goal is that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. God is the lawgiver. Lawfulness, decency, honor, righteousness cannot be defined apart from him. The only brand of righteousness that pleases God is the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. Therefore, we make it our goal, our aim in life to please Christ above everything. Let me clarify that. The only righteousness that pleases God is the righteousness that is in Christ that we access by faith. Nothing else is pleasing. Do this, embrace, embrace this perspective and be liberated from the tyranny of unbiblical expectations. You see, this is, this is one of Satan's chief tactics. This bondage of shame and regret, he used it so effectively with the Pharisees who enslaved Israel under their oral law tradition. And how did Jesus combat that oral law tradition? He openly, publicly, deliberately broke it every time he could. He went around uh, in this uh, way of, of looking for opportunities to undermine their laws. That's how he liberated Israel from their bondage. He healed on the Sabbath. He touched the sick and the unclean. He sat down at the dinner table with outcasts. His men picked little heads of grain on the Sabbath for a snack and ate them without going through the cleansing ritual while all the Pharisees clutched their pearls and, and squealed. And never for a second, never for a second was Jesus transgressing his father's law. The father was well pleased with the son every moment of his life. Jesus was pleasing to the father, but he disgusted the Pharisees because he didn't conform to their expectations. And then Jesus called them the sons of their father, the devil, because their agenda of shame and virtue signaling was satanic. Satan runs the very same play today through modern Pharisees of all kinds who scold you into submission, who shame you into compliance. You don't love your neighbor unless you do what we say. We define how to love your neighbor. You know, we, the ones who think it's okay to chop up babies in their mother's wombs, we've got a corner on loving your neighbor, and we get to define what that looks like. You're a bigot unless you're accepting of all the weird things we establish as normal. If you don't accept these weird things that destroy lives and cause all kinds of problems and hurt and pain and death... Unless you accept these things, you're a bigot. You see, what they're doing is they're just drafting new statutes and new ordinances, which are forever changing. And there's nothing in those to save. There's nothing in those to redeem. There's no way of keeping these laws. Child of God, the Lord Jesus has delivered you from all of this. If your biggest regrets have to do with your failure to live up to someone else's, expectations or even your own unbiblical expectations, you have to turn loose of those regrets. Reject them, invest yourself in a pursuit of a life that is pleasing to Christ alone. And if you have the courageousness of Jesus, if you have a little holy honoriness, be like Jesus and look for ways to openly, publicly, deliberately break the superstitious extra biblical law code whenever you can. You take that however you want. <laughs> The the second one, another source of regret, is bad decisions that have ongoing painful consequences which we're not processing biblically. We're not thinking clearly about the results or the consequences of bad decisions. When I say bad decisions, I mean something that didn't turn out the way you expected or intended or planned. It may be a bad decision in retrospect when you... you, um, look back with your current wisdom and maturity, and you you just can't believe what a knucklehead you were back then, if you had the same decision to make today, you would do something different with the benefit of hindsight, or it may be a bad decision that was on the outset a good decision based on the best information that you had at the time, but your information was biased or wrong or incomplete you got counsel, you prayed about it, you plowed ahead and it still didn't turn out the way you hoped. And now looking back, you think, oh, I just wish I would have done the other thing or wish I would have done something different. I wish I would have went somewhere else. Or in many cases, we have to be honest, there's no letting us off the hook. In many cases, the decisions that we regret we were being absolutely foolish. There were all kinds of warning signs and and we blew right through them. We were prideful and we were arrogant. We determined to do what we were going to do no matter what anybody said. And now we're still paying the price. If you discern that there was an element of sin, of sinful pride, of sinful foolishness in your poor decision, well, that goes over in the category of guilt. And you know what to do about guilt. Admit you're a sinner, confess your sins before God, confess your sin to other people who you've injured or offended, and then rest in God's forgiveness. That's what you do. If you've done that and you're still torn up about it, hang on, we're gonna talk about the mercies of God, the depth and scope of God's mercies. But if you are regretting decisions that didn't pan out for lack of information or lack of maturity or, or, or no foreknowledge, and you're still grieving over those decisions in a way that has incapacitated you and has you stuck, then that's a theology problem. And we can correct that. Because there are some lies or there's some errors that we tell ourselves in the depth of regret. Here's one lie, I should have known the future. I should have known how that was gonna go. I should have known what was gonna happen. Here's what you need to know, all human decisions are made without the benefit of seeing the future. Every single human decision is made without the benefit of knowing what's going to happen. Every time you make a choice, small or great, you are operating with limited information. And here's the other part of that. God does not expect you to know the future. He knows you don't know the future. That's not a secret to him. He doesn't think, well, they should have seen what would have happened. No, he knows you didn't know the future because God created you without foreknowledge. And he doesn't judge you based on your lack of foreknowledge don't don't regret when you were regret the past. don't regret your failure to read the tea leaves or, or or read the fortune cookie or look in the crystal ball because none of those work. God alone knows the future, and your future is in his hands. God has complete foreknowledge, and God is sovereign. He knows the outcome before you did, and he didn't stop you, therefore your decision did not thwart his eternal plan for your life or for his kingdom. Jeremiah 29, God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and to hope. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of Yahweh that will stand. Proverbs 16, nine, the heart of man plans his way, but Yahweh establishes his steps. You are not expected to know the future or even know an outline or a schematic of the intersection of God's sovereignty and man's duty. You're not, you're not required to do that. You are expected to be faithful with what you have been given and to rest in the truth that God does know the future and that all of his plans, all of his plans end in his glory and your blessing. You are not required to know the future. So if your regret is, boy, I should have known what was coming. How? How? You didn't know the future. Don't don't think that you were supposed to know the future. Secondly, uh, another lie we tell ourselves is, I have a high degree of control of the world around me. It's up to me to make perfect decisions and to guarantee all outcomes. And God holds me personally accountable for all of it. We believe that a life well lived is a life, uh, a matter of finding a secret formula, of of plugging in all the right numbers that provide a certain result, of flipping the right switches in the right order and will guarantee a good outcome. And that's our job to figure that out and to do that. As if there are no other influences in the cosmos more powerful or more effective than our powers. It's up to us to find the perfect plan, to execute it. And no matter what, we are solely culpable for all the downstream results. We take ourselves so seriously and we give ourselves way too much credit. If you want the antidote to taking yourself seriously, read the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 9 says, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. You can do everything right. You can do everything you're supposed to do and you can still fail. You can still not get the outcome you, you expect. There will be something inevitably that you can't control, that you can't predict that you can't plan for that will change the outcome and will give you an imperfect result. That is a very hard pill for perfectionists to swallow. Because perfectionists believe if you do everything right up front, you are guaranteed a result. And that's just not reality. This teaches us humility and to put way less confidence in ourselves. You all know James 4. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You're a mist. Instead, you ought to say if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So that's another error. You do not have the control that you think you have. And if your regrets are based in your lack of being able to control all the outcomes, let it go, put it away. One more error that keeps us enslaved to regret for bad decisions is, I cannot give thanks for failure. We believe that failure is is such an impossible, unfortunate, terrible outcome that there's no way to rejoice even in failure or to give thanks for failure. There's so much shame associated with our regrets, there's no room for gratitude. Let me ask you a quick question. Did you ever feel regret over falling off your bicycle when you were a kid learning how to ride a bike? Did you get off the bike and say, man, I really regret trying that. That was, man, that was dumb of me to try riding a bike and I fell off. I should've known what was gonna happen. I was gonna fall off and I was gonna skin my knee. You ever feel regret over that? Is is regret how you would describe that? Do you ever feel regret over coloring outside the lines or dropping a ball the first time you tried to catch a ball? Did you regret that? No, why not? Because it was all part of the learning process. There's no shame. Try again, try again, try again, do it again. And you cheerfully get back up on the bike. You cheerfully say, dad, throw me the ball again. You cheerfully say, give me another coloring page. I'll do better next time. Cheerfully, there's no shame. Then somewhere around around grade school, we start to associate shame and dread and failure with the learning process. You you didn't just make a mistake, you failed, right? And and all the slip-ups and all the errors that come anytime you're learning something new now have this moral component to them. Now... A slip up or a failure or mistake, you're not trying hard enough. You aren't applying yourself. We start to interpret all of our errors that way. And we miss the blessing of giving thanks to God for all things, including the shaping of mistakes, including the lessons that mistakes bring us. Learn from them. Don't keep making them, but give thanks for them. Romans eight twenty eight says, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for the glory of God. All things includes your failures. All things include your mistakes. All things include your bad decisions. So give thanks for them. That's how he's working out his purposes. That's how he's maturing you. In Ecclesiastes 7, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. God has made the day of prosperity. God has made the day of adversity. Give thanks for both of them. Both are from the hand of God to remind us who is the potter and who is the clay. In Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Give thanks for the process that God is working out in you and your gratitude will put regret to flight. Your gratitude will put shame to flight. One last reason for regret we'll consider today is our lack of comprehension of the depth and the scope of God's forgiveness. A person who is mired in deep regret will often say something like this, I just don't know how I can ever forgive myself. I don't know how I can ever let myself off the hook for my past. And even though I've confessed my sins many times and I've cried out to God for forgiveness, I still believe that I deserve nothing less than condemnation and judgment. Is that you, you, child of God, who've been liberated from slavery and you're still walking around in the chains of guilt? You who've been liberated from your debt of sin and a great wealth has been transferred to your account and you're still walking around as if you're in rags and eating scraps. You're not living in the light of the grace of God. You're not behaving like a forgiven person. It doesn't matter if you feel like you can forgive yourself, that's not even a possibility anyway. I don't know how you forgive yourself. It's not up to you to forgive yourself when God already has. In Romans chapter eight, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not work according to the flesh, but according to the spirit but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, because the spirit is life, because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I want to unpack every phrase of that and we're out of time. You think that God can't forgive you for this thing that no one else knows about. You think that God can't forgive you of this thing that you're carrying around and you need to know and remember that you have God's spirit dwelling in you. The spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and that in his forgiveness, there is no condemnation of sin. First John 3, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So child of God, rest in the peace and the grace of the Lord Jesus. If you have confessed your sin, if you have trusted Christ, take comfort and complete and, and, and total rest in his forgiveness. You are not destined for condemnation. So what do we do with regret? Here's what we do. Rebuke the voice of the accuser. It is not the Holy Spirit who stirs up these regrets. It is not the Holy Spirit who brings up your failures and ruins your life with the remembrance of past failures. Pray that God would stop the mouth of the accuser and help you to forget. Learn to practice a holy forgetfulness. Ask God to forget the sins of your youth so that you can too. God says in Isaiah 43, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. He wants to throw them behind his back. Why do you keep bringing it up? Paul says in Philippians 3 that he had to forget the things that were behind and reach forward to the things which are ahead or else his past sins would consume him. Point out your regrets one by one by one. Isolate them. And ask God, if there's anything that I have not confessed by way of sin in any of these things, Father, please forgive me and please forget them so that I can forget them, so that I can put them behind me. Forget them, forget them, forget them. And when they come up again, forget them again. Actively forget them, rebuke the accuser, release and forget all of your past failures and remember your identity that you live to please Christ alone, clean your house of regrets this Advent, and so rest in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray indeed for release from the awful load of, of past uh, failures and mistakes and sins, sins that you've forgiven us for, and you've we've prayed over and over for, 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 for forgiveness, and, and yet they still weigh us down. So, Father minister to us by your Holy Spirit that we can truly and fully be released from the ongoing consequences of these sins that uh, weigh us down. So Father, strengthen us in this. Strengthen us in your Spirit and let us know your peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.